Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Berg. We're at Roots Wine in Yamhill. It's uh, June 17th, 2020. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question. Thank you. Uh, first question, as you know, uh, why wine? <laughs> oh, I'm. What? You're on. I'm making what? wine. You're what? Grapes and everything. Oh, I thought I was just making grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I must have screwed it up along the way. Oh well. Now I got into wine. Um, should we be serious? The series you want to be. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So it all started a long time ago. Now I still can't be serious. I don't know. It's just one of those things. I don't know if I'm really serious about this industry. I am serious about it, but I'm not serious about it. I don't think I got in the wine industry because of my passion for food and pairing of wine with food and the family aspect of it and that whole camaraderie and and pulling together because I would see my parents would have their friends over as a little kid and they would have their sort of gourmet night and they would have wine and food pairings like they would do with themes like Italy or they would do France or blah 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 country you know or Germany or whatnot I don't know if there's a blah 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 country but there probably would be if you know the UN would allow it but uh and there's Liechtenstein which is close but uh anyway so um I, I noticed this from my folks and their friends growing up, and then my folks started talking to some of their friends about, well, wouldn't it be great if we had like some property and we had a vineyard? You know, sort of like that Charles Schwab ad from the 90s, you know. Uh, but anyway, so some friends of theirs and my parents got in and started seriously, you know, sort of quasi, sort of seriously initially, and then as they were looking more and more, they became more serious about it, mm-hmm. and then they were looking around the valley. Uh, Emily Gladhart, I don't know if you're familiar with her, She's, she and her family have Winters Hill Winery. We met them back in 94 or 93, somewhere in that time frame when my parents were starting to look for property. And we were f- sort of familiar with the area where back in the 70s we lived in Pocatello, Idaho, and during the summer months we would take some time out from Pokey and drive out to the coast here and spend long weeks uh, down in Otter Rock. And so we passed through the wine country and my folks were familiar with the area and the wines from the area from those days. And so they thought about looking around up here in Oregon for property. They reached out to, and it just happened to be Emily Gladhart, and she was familiar with the wine industry in the vineyard area where at the time, back in the early 90s, there weren't really too many real estate agents focusing on that niche. Um, But anyway, she's great, and she spent a lot more time than she should have with us looking at places, and we looked all over the valley up and down it, everywhere from when Tualatin Estates was for sale back in the early 90s to places like, 
I'm not sure what it is even now, but it's called Orchard Heights down outside of Salem. Mm -hmm. And we looked at all these different places and it was always like, eh, not quite. This soup's too hot, this soup's too cold sort of thing, you know? And then uh, finally we got a call out of the blue, or my folks did, saying, yeah, well, there's this property that's gonna be coming on the market. It's not on the market yet, but we, I I really seriously suggest you put down an offer on it. If you don't put down an offer on it, you might want to find a different real estate agent. And it's sort of like that sort of like comes home to you. It's like, well, yeah, and you know, maybe that isn't quite the fit between the real estate agent and the customers or the potential property owners. And so anyway, came out, I came out with them too, uh, looked at the property, at the time it was in forest deferral, so it was all overgrown blackberries, poison oak, scotch broom, you know, all the other great commodities of Oregon. And so we looked at that. It was not quite, you couldn't quite see, but there were glimpses. Willa Kenzie was just planted at the time um, and starting to get into production in a couple of sections of their vineyard. Ronnie and Bernie owned the place at that time. And um, we made the offer on it and it was accepted. And then about four months later, closed on it. And at that time, and that was in 96, and so I already had it in my mindset that I was about ready to move on to the next chapter in my life. I was living in Kansas at the time, played music in a band, uh, got my English degree because I had the most credits in it, like I mentioned to you. And so I was like, okay, I want to do what I want to do. So I gave myself three options, and one of them was to stay in the college town, play music, and see about making a living at it. And I, it was fun. It was fun. It was a good sort of get that, get that out of your system sort of thing. Try to make something and try to do what you want to do. And... It didn't quite work out, so our few years later in 98, we purchased a company in Tualatin, or my family did, and it was a heavy manufacturing equipment. It didn't really fare too well. Uh, we got hit with the economic recession, and the sector it was focused on was at its all-time low. So we had to close up shop shortly after that. But meanwhile, though, we started planting the vineyard here in 99 and 2000. And we closed the business in 2001, early, early 2001. And I decided that, well, I was 30 years old, not quite 31. And in life, you're given so many chances to invent yourself and become who you want to be and make those determining factors of your future and life. And at 30, I realized I'm only given so many more chances to reinvent myself here and do what I want to do. So I jumped in the wine industry full time, or tried to. I did everything and anything I could for a long time. I think I still am trying to do anything and everything I can to stay in this industry. It's crazy. I mean, there's, there's other industries out there that would welcome you in with all open arms. And this industry does, but it's, it's, it's so seasonal in certain facets of it. And it's so, can be so brutal because of the 
amount of stuff that's going on and the consumer sort of like finicky sort of habits and their 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 interests mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like you know sometimes customers it's sort of like talking or working with or being around little like three-year-olds you know mm -hmm. keeping the attention span of these people and and everything it's it's you got to always try to reinvent yourself and try to keep things fresh and new for them and so um in when i was 30 i jumped into the industry full-time or tried to started working harvest and meanwhile during that whole entire process i was taking classes at Chemeketa because i was going down that direction of where i wanted to go and what i wanted to do and Chemeketa was just still in its fledgling years of its program of its wine and viticultural programs and so I took some classes from some amazing people like Rick Maffitt from Mystic Wines. Um, he was the long time, he's a UC Davis grad, and for a long time he was a sales rep for, I believe, Scott Labs. Very interesting cat, really nice guy, super, super intelligent, and he's seen all sides of the industry and just very kind, very nice to work with and talk to and learn from. So I took some winemaking class from him. I took a class from Bryce Bagnall, who was the winemaker and uh, for Witness Tree for a long time. And that was one of the places that I went to visit when I first came out here, to because I'm like checking out everybody's shit. Sorry. But uh, checking out everybody's stuff to see, you know, what they're doing on the, and, you know, and tasting these different wines and sort of like, what makes this like this, and what what is that, and what do they do here, and they're stylistically, and what makes them want to do that, and you know, and and Witness Tree, for me was a awesome place in the early, in the mid, in the late '90s, that whole '90s period with Bryce under the realm of it, under the realm of the winemaker there. I mean, Stephen Westby is. He's done an amazing job there too. And, um, but anyway, learning from Bryce, I took a class from Bryce and he was, he was very instrumental as far as sparking imagination for me and very, very informative and really great guy. I miss him. And uh, yeah, and then I also took classes from Al McDonald who has Seven Springs Vineyard and Andin Vineyard, up above it, named after the kids. And it was great to take viticulture classes from him because he was very much just hands-on. And that's why I really appreciate it with the junior college sort of programs, is because it's very focused on the practical, everyday knowledge sort of, sort of things. Like, you, could, you can learn something from them in the book or whatever, or out in the classroom, and take it out to whatever you're doing the next day in your own place, mm -hmm. which, is, which is super vital for, for sparking and creating and cultivating a sort of cauldron for people to grow into the industry that we're in now. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I took those classes from them. And then in 2000, I decided, OK, I'm going to see if I can find a, a harvest position and intern. 
I looked around. I, I didn't know where to go, really, initially back then. I wasn't really connected to the industry, being so new to it. Um, but talked around, found an ad, uh, called it. It was for Lemelson Winery, their first year making wine at their place outside of Carlton. Talked to Thomas Batchelder, who's the winemaker there, and he said, oh, well, we're all full up, but I think we got some, I think I know somebody else that's making wine in our facility that, that can use some help. And it turned out to be Eric Comiker. And I worked for him for a little, just about a year, but it was probably some of my favorite memories in the industry as far as like, Everything being new, it was a new facility. Everybody was excited to be there, it felt like. There were some shenanigans in the winery that made some sort of fun moments afterwards. Um, maybe not for Eric Lemelson, but I don't know if he remembers that. But we'll, I'll have to bring it up to him next time I see him. But anyway, so those were some fond memories. And uh, from there, I sort of went off and worked in 2001, 9-11 year, uh, worked for Rex Hill. It was Lynn Penner-Ash's last year there. And it was a challenging year as far as weather-wise versus 2000. Uh, some of the personnel there was it, was, it was a challenging time with the whole, with, with that, all going down. It was it was very instrumental in what I became. I there are certain things you pick up in everything and anything you do, either likes or dislikes to make who you are in life. And you take I mean, I don't want to quote a bad TV show, but you take the good, you take the bad. <laughs> you take the bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, Trudy, where are you now? <laughs> Anyhow, so 2001, worked at Rex Hill. And then um, if, after that, in 2002, uh, I started helping out a friend and working for Dean and Ann Fisher, who you've met and interviewed them at Adia. Beautiful people. Absolutely salt of the earth people. Really love them. And um, they helped me out substantially. I tried to help them out as much as I could in doing some sales and work in the vineyard or working in the winery and everywhere and anywhere that was needed. And um, that was good experience. And in two, 20, 2020, no, 2002, said dyslexia kicking in. Uh, in 2002, that was the first year we were coming due on our vineyard here. So Dean was kind enough to allow me to have some space in his winery to make some wine under a custom crush agreement and made a whopping 72 cases. So just three barrels worth of wine on that. And now I'm left with only 11 bottles. Oof. I wish I would have been able to sell it. But everything then, I mean, to try to get to a certain period with not having 
unlimited pockets or pockets that go down to your toes, you know, it's like from hand to mouth. I ended up, everything I made, I funneled back into the business for seven straight vintages, everything. I didn't save, I saved it the most on those good vintages or the vintages I really loved or the wines I really loved. I saved maybe at the most like two or three cases worth of it. So it's hard to go back and revisit that history for me uh, because I don't have a whole lot there in order to, to go and review. At some point it would be nice to just do a nice retrospective just for memory's sake. And uh, so in 2002, made that wine, sold it. 2003, was at Adia, but at that time, before I was releasing the 2002, so you make the wine, ages it, then bottle it. In this case, I was under the whole pretext of wanting to age for uh, at least two winters. And this was taught to me through Thomas Batchelder and Eric Homaker and Dean Fisher, my mentors, essentially. And um, in keeping it over that time, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to need no people to sell. And I was doing some sales back in the early years when we had the business and everything. And um, other times in my life, I was, I've done industrial sales. So I, I feel comfortable talking to people and feel comfortable in in trying to help them essentially in the partnership of something that would be something that they could use and or their customers need you know and so we i you know i was it was totally comfortable with that and i looked around in the portland market for distributors that were looking for salespeople and found a kind german gentleman by the name of evald mosler I don't know if you've interviewed him or talked to him, but a fascinating guy. He's got a, he's a paratrooper and a demons, demo, demolitions expert from the German army. <laughs> now he found his way out here selling German wine. It's just odd. He's a very colorful person, very interesting cat. Um, but he was kind enough to give me a job in doing sales. And I did that for him for a little over two and a half years before he closed down shop on that. Mm -hmm. I'm sounding like a horrible, like, like you go near me, I'm, your business is gonna be closed <laughs> down or something. It wasn't like that, it, but anyway, so I was working for him and, and it was great. I get to meet a lot of the wine buyers around the Portland market and other areas too. I'd go up to Seattle, I'd go down to Corvallis, I'd go out to Bend and go sell wine all over the state and all the way all over Washington. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun to get out and do that. And I, it was, you know, there's sort of me, part of me that misses that side of thing because now I've been growing and been having to focus more attention to the vines and the winery and other hats that you wear in this business. So, anyway, that's 2003, 2004, 2005. I went over and helped the Apollonis put in their winery in 2005. And then um, in 2006, moved from there to another facility and became the winemaker over there at Laurel Ridge. Was there for seven years. 
and the whole time making wine there, making wine for her, making wine for other clients, growing my own production up, having to be at some point understanding that I would like to have my own facility and be in charge of my own destiny. And so at some point for those new winemakers that are getting into the business, they've got to realize, you know, they're going to want their own space. When I got into the business in 2000, there were only like a handful of like custom crusher, alternating proprietor sort of places you could make wine. One of the first one was Eola Hills. And then um, Eric Homaker was very instrumental in setting up for Medici to be in, like a, being one as far as for custom crusher or alternating proprietorship wineries. And then he moved over and, and he set up, helped set up uh, Lemelson to be that way. And then from there it was pop, 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 pop. All these different places started popping up being alternating proprietorship or custom crush facilities. So <clears throat> when I was in, before I even got to Laurel Ridge, I was starting to buy pieces of equipment that I would need mm -hmm. over time. And so at some point you sort of amass enough, almost like a pack rat, you know, a hoarder. Uh, you amass enough equipment where you can start thinking about putting in your own facility. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> at the end of the day, it's nice to have your own place where you're in charge of it, like your own house, and you're not just a roommate, mm -hmm. you know. So in 2006, started at Laurel Ridge. 2013, left there, went over to Medici, was there for just under two years before putting in our place here and our first crush in our facility on our property with our vineyard and our house and tasting room and dogs and, and chickens and turkeys and ducks and occasional bobcats that take off the ducks and the chickens in 2015. That was our first vintage here. And it's been, it's been great. It took a year or two to sort of adjust to like, you know, just like moving into a new house. Where does this credenza go? Mm -hmm. Not like I have a credenza, but I'm just saying, if you had a credenza, where would you put it? Where would you put it? <laughs> it's that silly table that's right in the entranceway, you know, that you have to have, that you put keys in and stuff. And Change, yeah, right. Yeah, Got that's it. what I use my <laughs> small table at the front of the house for. So anyway, so now being 2020 now, we've had five vintages in the vineyard. No, four vintages, not quite five. This will be the fifth coming up this fall mm -hmm. if we all live that long. Mm -hmm. For sure. Oh my God. So I want to talk about your, mm -hmm. how you've sort of developed, you, you mentioned taking the good and the bad and, and all the different mentors you've had. Yeah, the facts of life. The facts of life. Tell me about yeah. those facts of life and tell me about how that you took what you took away from your early experiences that you see in your philosophy now for growing grapes and for making wine as far as the good or the bad both. or both yeah for growing grapes just just on the grape side we'll talk about grapes we'll talk about wine we'll talk about them separately together however i, I was sort of thinking no, i like the the prospect of, of keeping them separate okay because they are two different worlds you know we'll on the vineyards on the vineyard side you know <clears throat> geez um 
we are organic here. We've been farming organically since 2000. And, um, you know, for us, it's been, you know, I, I'm not certified. I'm not going that route because in the early days, and I've talked to Doug Tunnell about this too, is that there's the whole problem of, of being certified. I couldn't get certified because our posts weren't old enough. Our posts are treated with a little bit of arsenic in them. And so OMSI, or not OMSI, <laughs> that's totally different. Omri, I don't know if OMSI has any part of vineyard science. Hopefully, hopefully they don't. You know. But it's a great sort of science museum. In fact, my kid's going to be in it next week. Awesome. But, <clears throat> yeah, he's, he loves his Legos. Uh, <clears throat> but um, Omri will not allow posts that were within a certain age, you young, being young, because of the potential of the arsenic leaching out in the soils and being uptaked into the vines. The data behind that, as far as even being remotely affecting grapes and being sucked up in it, is negligible. Mm -hmm. But it was something that they had put in there, so I was certainly and automatically disqualified from being certified. So I was like, screw you. I'm not going to bother with that. And I've, I've talked to Jason Led. He's an organic, but he's never gone for certification on his side. And it, part of it's like, you know, you believe in what you put into the ground. You know, that's part of you. Like, if you're going to be farming conventional because, you know, you, you're, you're a farmer and you're going to farm it to... Make sure that you're making, you, you, you can make your crop levels in, on that side and, and, and have clean product for your customers. Hats off to you, 100%. You do that. That's, that's your methodology. That's you. But for me, seeing we live on the property and we've got, and you know, at the end of the day, oh, sorry, hon. My wife hates that term. At the end of the day? At the end of the day, I get it. But anyway, <clears throat> so. When it's all said and done. That's another good one, too. <laughs> but when it comes down to, I don't know if she hates that one, but we'll deal with that later when she looks at the video and critiques me on all this <laughs> stuff. But uh, when it, when the customer is going to go that route, you know, and, and, uh, that's for them but for myself seeing I'm not selling the fruit I can I do what I want to do mm -hmm. and my my belief has always been more towards the less is more mm -hmm. sort of thing in all facets everything from viticulture to winery and cleaning up around the house <laughs> absolutely but not, with, not necessarily with food though no but my wife doesn't really agree with me on that less is more <laughs> <laughs> but honey, if I don't pick up the clothes and stuff, then it'll be ready when I need to put them in the when I need to put them in the washing machine. I'm kidding. That's no. I I try to become like pick up and stuff and anything. Anyway, so we're getting way off base here. Yeah. But less is more in the vineyard. Totally. And in the sense that like less is more and less is more, and where I'm not using strobilins, I'm not using like other sort of chemicals and, and things like that that are long effective like flint or some of these other sort of uh, spray material that is you spray it and it 
has an efficacy of say 14 to 21 days before you need to spray again. Mm -hmm. I'm not of that mindset because to me that's sort of detrimental to the overall quality of the fruit that I'm looking for personally. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I but I get it on the more conventional side of farming. And there's some sites that, you know, I've gone that road as far as the organics for this long, where I've tried it on other sites that I've leased and farmed for periods of time. And some sites you can't you can't do organic on it. No matter how many people say you can. You just can't because of airflow, the the elevation of it, the site, the humidity factors, the water that's that's in the vineyard that's pooling. Um, you know, there's there's certain factors you just can't just overall just say, yep, this is the way it is for everything. You just can't do that. I mean, I've always been more on the holistic side, but I've always been more pragmatic about what you're going to do and what you can what you can do to certain places. So, one one hat doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, in the vineyard here, being organic, our site, fortunately, we've because of Emily and, and my family and everything, and we've been able to find such a awesome place. And so, um, you know, piece of heaven, pretty much. If you get a chance, come down to Roots Winery. We're open on Friday through Sunday. Call my mom for an appointment, please. Thank you. Anyway, so if that's the case, though, I mean, we've, we've found the property. We've got great drainage here. We've got great elevation, great aspect to it, where you get good photosynthesis as the day progresses. Um, good, good sort of drainage for airflow, so there's not really a lot of cold air and humidity pooling in mm -hmm, our site. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it allows us to be able to do organic fairly easy without having to worry about mm -hmm condensing the spray schedule to seven days. We can probably extend it out depending upon dew point and humidity and all that other stuff. Uh, we can extend it out on certain periods to 10, 14 days on certain times of the year. So we're not having to tighten it up and use more chemicals and spray more and more and more and more. But being said though, being organic though, we pretty much stay to all the basic elements. You know, we do sulfur, we spray that fairly regularly in the early season, and then we'll transition into some other things. There's some um, bacillus uh, spray material. We use cinerate, uh, which is uh, predominantly, the, the main ingredient is cinnamon oil. So it smells nice. Mm -hmm. My wife likes it a lot more than when I sp spray like sulfur. Mm -hmm. And she hates it when I spray sulfur. It just stinks. But I don't mind it. Yeah, so, and then there's some other, other items like mineral oil mm -hmm. and organic material. Um, when, if, the, if by chance there is powdery mildew or a little bit of botrytis on the vines, we can spray things like baking soda, essentially on it and that's another nice ingredient that will will spray on the vines and it'll help coat them and and it's like 
you know how how baking soda is abrasive and so it's abrasive towards the skin of the grapes where it'll scrub off the bacteria mm -hmm. that um, powdery mildew and stuff it'll scrub that off but it also will also scrub off that waxy layer on the epidural of the skin of the grape so if you're spraying it you got to be very cognitive of what the weather is going to be like coming up on mm -hmm. the backside if it's going to be really hot uh, you may not want to do that depending upon the temperature because when you do that uh, you can open yourself up and, and this has happened before I've had fruit from other sites and I've had a little spottiness here where uh, you get some extreme dehydration in those berries and it becomes just like raisin bran on the vines so you got to be sort of watchful on that side of things and then um, that's the majority part of the vineyard as far as my philosophy and methodology in the, in the, in the vineyards. But I've been fortunate to work with some really nice vineyards. Seeing we're in the Amhill Carlton AVA, uh, my heart is here. It's sort of like if you farm and you've got your own farm or you've got a well and your palate tends to become conditioned almost towards your well water that you have and or if you farm or you have your own little thing or whatever and or CSA and um, you, you source your produce from there your palate can sort of go that direction mm -hmm. towards eating that sort of food or drinking that sort of water and that is your benchmark in a way if that makes sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like when I got out of high school I wanted to be a chef so that was the first thing I did was get into culinary school. And it was all because of some salad that I had. You know, most people would think, salad, what the hell? It's just some green stuff and you just throw some like Thousand Island on it. But this was a really damn good salad. It was really good. It had like, it was frisee, and usually frisee is just like, like, you know, bitter astringent, mm -hmm. sort of like mustardy green, almost mm -hmm. like that. But this had like a really, really nice vinaigrette on it and some Asiago cheese like shaved like super fine on top of it and it was delicious so it sparked my imagination and my sort of like wow if a fucking salad could be fucking good what else could be good out there as mm -hmm. far as food goes it's sort of like that ratatouille moment you know in mm -hmm. ratatouille and sorry now we got to pay Disney mm -hmm. and licensing and all that stuff don't quote from a director oh, okay anyway it was that moment when he eats that cheese on that little truffle and the lightning hits it and he's just like boom that epiphany moment anyway yeah but not really so uh, so I got into a culinary program right after high school in junior college mm -hmm. and outside of Chicago and quickly learned that wasn't for me because the head of the program, he was the executive chef for Motorola and he wanted everything to be like catering. Mm -hmm. And it's done on scale. And I was always into the small, minute sort of things, the smaller things and doing things like that. And that one didn't fit with his program. Mm -hmm. So I became disillusioned and looked around for other things okay what do I like I like music okay so I'll take some music classes and stuff took classes in of all things the timpani that was awesome big ass <laughs> kettle drum boom 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 
but had a recital and spaced out in the middle of recital and started playing my own sort of jam and fusion thing, which wasn't <laughs> part of the whole. <laughs> Didn't but work with the rest of things, yeah. It was, yeah, it was really cool. I wish I recorded it. But anyway, it, it I got an okay score on that. But anyway, um, then bounced around, liked psychology. So I took some psychology classes. That was interesting. But then I couldn't do the clinical stuff. That was too tedious and boring for me on the clinical side of things. And then um, my mom always thought I was a great sort of argue. I like I like to argue. So she said, "Well, you should be a lawyer." <laughs> didn't so, work out, huh? Nah, I didn't. I couldn't do that. Too much like. Ergo, cognito, esco, gato. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like domo arigato, but Mr. Roboto, but totally different. I think you just said, I think therefore I'm a cat. Yeah. <laughs> I think therefore I'm a cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but anyway, and then took some like Descartes and some philosophy stuff, but then had an English teacher that sparked my imagination. It was very complimentary and very sort of fruitful and, and helped me out and made me think about things in a different direction and I always loved the humanities. Mm -hmm. I was always where my heart was on that side of things. And so took more classes from her, graduated from junior college and decided, well, shoot, I guess I got a major in something. So I majored in English at that time mm -hmm. because I had the most credits in it. Mm -hmm. And then anyway, fast forward, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting here with you. Mm -hmm. So as far as the vineyard side of things, that's my philosophy, methodology on that thing. On the winemaking side of things, we started in 2002 making wines. And at the time, you know, back in 2002, you know, people were doing, there was more towards like wanting to please critics mm -hmm. in 2002. Everybody was trying to come up with bigger, bolder, richer wines and that sort of structure of things. And so I fell into that camp for a few years, not trying to make Syrah out of Pinot, but trying to make full body Pinot Noirs and all that sort of stuff. And did that for, for a while. And then in 2007, where I was at, at Laurel Ridge, we had Seven Springs Vineyard in there uh, Evening Land Vineyards mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with Mark Tarlov and uh, Isabel Mounier and uh, and Dominique Lafon was their consulting winemaker and they came over and they were making wine in the facility and um, I'm starting to see what they're doing and they're doing nothing revolutionary at all but they're not really looking at adding yeast into the ferments and I was sort of like I did it once or twice before that but not really much and you going more towards the native fermentations and so in I did some of those in 2007 and liked how they were doing plus I was cheap and if I didn't have to pay for yeast then great you know, it's doing what I needed it to do anyway, which is convert the sugar to alcohol. And so, well, no, actually, I was trying to just make juice, and then I screwed it up along the way because the native yeast got in there, and it ended up fermenting it into wine. So 
we ended up, so, so I ended up doing that. And then a few years later, started really just like, you know, just ditching yeast in a bag as a whole mm -hmm. and just been doing it since basically 2007, 2008. Um, and with that intention and then, yeah, going down that road. So um, that's another sort of form of who I am today is between my farming aspects and the winemaking side of things is always trying to do something a little different too, learning. I mean, if you're in whatever you're going to do in life, always keep looking at doing something a little bit. First, identify who you are. And to get there, you got to learn from other people, just like a little kid learning from his parents. And then you become that, that kid that learns to walk. And that's, that was me back in 2004, when I felt more confident about winemaking and I could make wine. And I know how to make wine without screwing it up. And then from there you become that adolescent where you get more confidence, but you get a little cocky and you make some mistakes along the way. And, but they also, hey. Um, so you become the adolescent, you make the mistakes. And then you sort of, hopefully you learn from and you're, you don't screw up so bad or you don't get too headstrong in yourself where you aren't willing to learn from your mistakes or admit that you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's certain people in office that don't learn from their mistakes and don't think they make mistakes, which is the most horrible things a person can do. And so going from that adolescence stage and learning from my mistakes, I feel like I've grown. I know I've grown. I'm definitely getting bigger. But uh, I've grown in the sense that I've, all these little steps lead me to where I'm at. Um, from those adolescent years, I've sort of grown in the sense of more confidence, different styles of adding those to my repertoire different varietals um, into it as well. And different vineyards, working with those, not working with those, changing them as far as different parts in the vineyards um, or different fruit in different sections of the vineyards, trying to find what works best. And I've worked with some vineyards that, you know, it's like relationships when you're working with fruit and working with, with Pinot Noir or Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Gris or whatever varietal you're working with. Um, and you can even take that even further into anything you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of how you work together, either people or whatever. And in this case with grapes, I've worked with sites where you know, I've tried to, like, I've got my own sort of style and the vineyard has its own way of growing and or style. Mm -hmm. And we work, we try to work together, but we end up butting heads. So a matter of it, sometimes it takes a little bit of this and that in order for it to work together. Sometimes it doesn't. Like I've done it with a site 
which I truly believed in. I still think it's an amazing site, but it's just, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a matter of the vines. At least I don't think it is, but I don't believe it's the vines. It's just that my methodology, I can't find the way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, I really wanted to champion this Pinot Gris, and I, this site out in the Columbia Gorge was a great, is, a, is a great site, but my style of fermentation, and it may be that I've finally, they're like, <sighs> she needs a bath too, later. But um, anyway, get, let me try to get back to this, back on task here. So the vineyard that I was working with, something about it, like with the Pinot Gris, going native, doing native uh, on the ferments on side like that, it takes more understanding than just putting fruit in a bin and just letting it do its thing. Mm -hmm. Some sites um, may take a little bit more coaxing, like that little kid who's trying to learn to walk. You know, you need to sort of try to help him out a little bit, give him some support. In this case, in the support, I wasn't giving enough support to that vineyard mm -hmm. and that wine. Mm -hmm. I was trying to force myself on that wine. Mm -hmm. I was trying to do it in small lots, small volumes, um, not giving it a lot of extra nutrients and food and stuff, being native um, and being more on the lower, the less is more side of thing, giving it more like vitamin B and thiamine and yeast holes on that side of things, more organic based towards the nutrients and not giving it to it. So it struggled. It didn't want to do what it wanted to do. So there was a few years I would be left with wines that weren't quite finished quite as far as fermented off mm -hmm. and yeah they make nice soft dry sort of whites but um it's not really what people would like mm -hmm. and at the end of the day i can make all the wine in the world you know and i could sit there and be like yeah this is great and this like that but i've got to sell the shit you know, I can't just sit there and make a thousand cases of wine and expect that I'm going to be drinking it all. I'd be dead. <laughs> so I got to sell the wine and I've tried it making this stuff and it doesn't quite work because I'm not getting it. Mm -hmm. I don't get the vineyard. So I tried that for a few years. And then one year I did, I, I ran out of vessels. This is like 2016 and I ran out of small tanks and stuff to put in. So I added this big open top fermenter, three ton fermenter, which holds about 800 gallons. And I had about like 650, 800, some like that. It was a while ago, so my mind gets a little foggy. But uh, I put all the juice in there and it starts fermenting and takes off, goes crazy. And well, what I, what I realized at that point is like, it needed more mass. I needed to ferment this in larger vessels if I'm going to go native with this. That way there's more heat that's created through the fermentation that's creating more synergy for that yeast to grow and develop and finish up and do what it's supposed to do. So anyway, finally figured it out, but it took about three years or four years to do that. And then by then the distributors were like, yeah, we like the Pinot Gris, but you're known for Pinot Noir. Great, thank you. 
So I spend all this time, effort, money, and trying to develop something for you guys, and then you end up pigeonholing me into something else. Mm -hmm. What I do, which is fine, you know, whatever. I just feel very fortunate that I've got a few products like my clay pinot and some of the other stuff that I do that distributors rely on, mm -hmm. and I sell three to five thousand cases of this stuff. So mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate of that. So. Back to the whole vineyards and wine and working together and cohabitating and coexisting and growing and everything like that. Now I'm now I'm doing Sad Blanc. Pretty much got that figured out where I like to go stylistically. And that vineyard that I work with needs a little extra loving hand. And so we give it a little bit of yeast holes and vitamin B and vitamin thiamine for it, for the yeast to develop and grow elasticity to them and, and finish up and do what I want them to do. And I really like how that's come out. Mm -hmm. So anyway. How long does it take you to know a vineyard? At what point do you feel comfortable with that, that kind of decision making? And with your vineyard here, do you know your vineyard yet? Yeah, I feel very like there's a symbiotic relationship between our vineyard and and myself. I truly feel like like I can go out there and and be it comfortable with the vines and know where they're where they're at in their cycle and growth and be on top of it for before it gets out of hand and before we run out of run into issues with it. And that's part of being in that relationship and that symbiotic sort of between it and myself and knowing where things are going has been doing it for 20 years now. I sure as hell hope I could get it right at some point or get to learn it, but it's, it's taken a while. And as far as the longer I've been doing this, I've been open to it. I'm not like some somebody that we mentioned that unmentioning of not listening and not paying attention and um, I have been listening and I have been paying attention and and following through with with the reactions to it mm -hmm. so cause versus effect you know you do this it's going to do that simple as that mm -hmm. if you don't do that then it's not going to do this or if you do this it's going to go that way so staying on top of it, knowing the course it's going to go, and been doing it for 20 years, knowing that if I do this, it's going to do that, mm -hmm. then I can have a better sense of where it's going to go. And in a way, it's sort of like chess, but, you know, not really. Does that make any sense? It does. Okay. I'm curious then, mm -hmm. with the wines you produce, especially from your own grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it you want uh, someone who drinks your wine to get out of that wine? What is, it, what is the response you want them to have or the, 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 the re reaction you want them to have? Always it needs to be about a sense of place. Even no matter what I make, no matter if it's my clay pinot, like the artist clay, K-L-E-E, -E, mm -hmm. or it's going to be say our estate Pinot Noir Racine, which is my reserve wine I only do on select vintages. No matter what it is, I want them to be able to sort of get a sense of place from the wine. Because if I don't, then I'm just making generic sort of juice, you know, or wine of whatever P 
Pinot Noir, Syrah. I don't want the Pinot to taste like a Syrah. I don't want the Syrah to taste like a Cabernet or a Zinfandel or, you know, whatever. I want it to first taste like the varietal. Secondly, taste of where it comes from or, or swap that around. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I want it to taste like where it comes from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the varietal is per se. Well, that's totally just backing out of what I just said. But, it, but you know, when I'm doing it, but that's part of the whole process of doing like our vineyard organic and working with other vineyards that speak of where they come from and working with them for extended periods of times, time and also working with more on the native yeast fermentation side of things. I think are all sort of things that brings my character to the wine without bringing a lot of stuff to the wine, not bringing a lot of chemicals into it, not using a lot of enzymes or using this yeast, Barolo yeast, to make it taste like a Barolo when we're making Pinot Noir, or using this sort of stabilizer on it at this point, or, you know, just not putting a lot of stuff into it. Mm -hmm. And by not having to do all that stuff, I think I'm trying to make a wine that speaks of the terroir loca location and where it's from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, even the clay wine that I do, like that, that wine is a, is a, a blend, a homogenous blend of all the Pinot Noir vineyards I work with. But even then, I wanted to speak of the vintage. I wanted to speak of Pinot Noir, I want to speak of the vintage of the location and where the fruit comes from, which is always just Northern Willamette Valley fruit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you talked a bit about a couple of your different, uh, you talked about the Racine and, and the Clay and a couple mm -hmm. of your different labels. Tell me about the sort of the behind the name label as you've come up with why you've called, why you call them what you do and, and we'll kind of use that to springboard into talking about your canned wine project as well. So talk yeah. about the kind of names and meanings behind your labels. Well, when we first put in the vineyard, um, my folks and I were at odds here. My folks want to name it after a dead dog of ours, which, you know, it's great and all, but I don't want to remember. I don't want to have to tell people the story like 10 years or 15 years later. You know, we named it Abbey Ridge because, you know, well, there's enough abbeys around here. There's the Trappist Abbey where I store my wine, and there's enough vineyards around that that have the Abbey name Namaker on it. And we're not near the Abbey. Plus, our dog will pass on and to continue to say, yeah, we named it after a dead dog. That suddenly is like a buzzkill right there and just sort of brings everything down. So I didn't want to have something like that in it. But I also was like, you know what? The grapes, it has to speak of where you're from on it. You know, the vines, as they go down, the root structures go down into the vines. That brings up the material that ultimately becomes part of what the flavor of the wine is. And so that being said, we named the Vineyard Roots, and that was back in 99. And um, so I've always had that sort of like, that's my identity. So with that, you can take that to who you are, your roots, mm -hmm. where you come from, mm -hmm. what is your history, what is, what is it that makes you up? And so for me, it's been my life experiences of everything. Of from the moment I, my first memory to right now that's who I am so <clears throat> taking that into account 
you, you, you're going to take those good and the bad, the facts of life as we put it, and that's going to make up your character. Mm -hmm. And so your character is determined upon, you know, being able to learn from those things. But when somebody doesn't learn from them, like we've gone over a few times, and I can't, I can't hammer it any more than this, but you got to get out and vote. And, um, you know, that being said, um, you know, that, that is the character of the wines. And then so that became the bedrock. That is the label. Mm -hmm. And we went, when we went out to dinner, my wife and I, Hillary and I, went out to dinner <clears throat> back in 2000 when I was working for Aircomiker. We went out with him and his wife, Louisa Ponzi, and we were, I think, at the Dundee Bistro. And I was, you know, Eric knew I wanted to make wine and that we had a vineyard and everything. And we're out with them and, and I'm at odds. Like, shortly before that, I learned from a friend of mine, his name is Tim Root. Tim, that's for you. Uh, shout out to my Ohio boy. And he, you know, just like all of us, we sort of research our names in different languages as we grow up and the translations of it and what it means and stuff like, just for the fascination of it, you know. And Google has helped out tremendously nowadays versus in the early days in the 70s when I was doing that and um, so I researched the name in different or, or he researched the name of Roots and and he he was the one who enlightened me I wasn't a French major but Racine in French means Roots and I happen to be born in Racine Wisconsin and I've got ties to the Midwest and um, it's one of those things where you should always remember where you're from. And just like a good Midwest person, you know, you are who you are. You wear yourself on your sleeve. You know, you're the person who you make. And with me, I was sort of like, oh, it was perfect. It was, it was that symbiotic relationship between, between person and place and who I am. I don't think that's the right term, but my wife will critique me later and edit me. Holistic, maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that sounds better. I like that, too. Anyway, so, um, so we've got the Racine label, and Louisa really was pushing for me to name the winery Racine, or not pushing, but she, that was her take on it. Eric was more like roots, you know? It's more down to earth. It's like who you are and stuff like that. Racine is more sort of like, you know, because of the French, it's more classical in that sense. And so we have that label we use for um, only on select vintages, <laughs> the vintages that I truly find something stand out and singletary that's identified as like above and beyond. So we only do that on select vintages. And then we have a few other ones too. We do the clay Pinot named after the artist because I was really fond of the Bauhaus and I felt like in a way wine is like is a perishable art form. It is, and why I got into the industry is of like wine and food, it's paired together. And I got into it and, the, and, and the, for me the Bauhaus was like one of those places where you learn a craft, you learn how to make art. And, and wine is like that. 
Yeah, so we've got that label, and then we've got a few other ones too. We did this thing, a barrel project, where we took wines and extended, aged them in barrels or vessels before bottling. So there was that project too, and then we have some other fun ones. Now currently I've been getting into canning wines. Mm -hmm. We bought a small little canning line, and we're doing some sparkling, rosé, Sablanc. Blanc, what they call a paquette, which was sort of like a reconstituted uh, must that becomes almost like a wine spritzer without going towards the you know pinky club on that side of things. It's just a fun sort of easy drinking wine. Mm -hmm. um, do big reds with their liquid nitrogen doser and other fun projects with that. I think the future of the wine industry, you always got to be open towards change. And in with change, you can you can grow and develop yourself and what you want to do and your product and your company and whatnot. Mm -hmm. When you become static, that's when things may not work out for you in the long run. Um, people change, you know. Customers change, buying habits change. There's always constants. There's always constants. And the moment you just don't move with it, I don't think you develop as a human and grow. And uh, so the canning side of things has opened up a whole new door as far as different options and different things. And I think there is a need for that. There is a need for alternative packaging than just straight 750 milliliter bottles. I like the classicism of those and with our labels and with our design and packaging I don't use foils, never have. I don't believe in foils. I think foils are decorative. They're there for to make the consumer feel like this product is this or that. Yeah, I mean, it's, but at the end of the day, you just cut the thing off and you're using precious environmental resources like bauxite and aluminum in manufacturing these in tin. I mean, these are precious resources that when they're exhausted, that's great. You got a nice foil on your bottle of wine, but at the end of the day, you're just going to cut it off and it's not going to reflect on the quality of the wine. So I liked the alternative packaging. I think that, you know, with cans, there's so many different options and so many different positive sides of using cans. Mm -hmm. The variability of, like, say you just want a glass of wine. You can just pop up in a can and have that. The quality is getting, I think, I make the same quality for the cans that I make and put in a bottle. For those people that just see it as just simple, just it's a niche. I'm just going to make some cheap wine, throw it in a can. People don't care. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not considerate to the customer. That's not considerate towards the packaging in which you're putting it in either. You're going to want. I mean, <clears throat> I would love to see see more people do canning because mm -hmm. at the end of the Sorry, <laughs> I got myself so about ready to say that. Yeah, but um, anyway, so with the can side of things, <coughs> you can recycle it 100%, the aluminum. 
and, and you can recycle it over and over and over and over again. Glass, you gotta break it down. It needs to be crushed and even then, finding places that are gonna be able to recycle that mm -hmm. is, is harder. I heard someplace down in New Zealand, they ran out of recycling down there for glass. So they were trying, some places were crushing it and putting it under their vines because they didn't have a place to put the glass. So uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I think not only can you just open one can, just one glass of wine, that's it. Mm -hmm. And that's all you want to have. But you can take it to parks, take it to concerts, if there are ever concerts again. Mm -hmm. You could take it out camping. They're easy to pack in. They're lightweight. The carbon footprint of, of, a, of the equivalency of a case of cans versus a case of bottles is like... I can't say half, but it's it's probably about two-thirds of the total weight mm -hmm. of what a case of glass would be, or even less than that. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's so many positives towards it. I mean, it's, it, aesthetically, is it as beautiful as a bottle with the label on it? Say I had the beholder, I don't know. I mean, I just find the versatility and usefulness of cans being great. So I'm, I'm rather bullish of it. And you know, Ryan Harms from Union, it was very foreseeing in his side to go that route. Mm -hmm. And so hats off to him. I won't take my hat off because I'm going bald. But, but anyway, um, you know, he was very thoughtful uh, or thought provoking and indoor forward thinking on that side of things. And so, yeah, his, his, um, his, he's definitely pushed things in the right way. And, you know, some of it also has to do with the matter of being in the right place at the right time, mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. Like, we all are put on this earth, and we all go our own way in life. And we make choices. Some of them are positive choices, and they, we grow from that, either financially or people or both or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Or sometimes you go a different direction, and you make bad choices, and you go down the road, and either you grow from it or not grow from it financially or through well-being or mindset or philosophy and thoughts. So he was fortunate to go the right direction at the right time and go in towards cans and believe in the cans and get good feedback and grow that to be an amazing business. And I see that as far as like, and I see the positives that he saw mm -hmm. and I think I think personally I think that there is a lot more development for it mm -hmm. his format is more towards the 375 format mm -hmm. like a half bottle of mm -hmm. wine mm -hmm. me I, I feel like I'm more akin towards the little bit smaller cans the 250 and the 187 mils because I feel that those are more what I would be wanting to have at night time with dinner I was about to say it but I didn't say it end of the day <laughs> so that that's that's how i where i'm at all these different things and then occasionally i'll do these one-off projects because i think you need to have things this goes to the whole <clears throat> being creative or trying to continue to do new things and put things out there and reinvent yourself and <clears throat> You need to have things 
to put out there for yourself and your customers and people for them to see that, hey, wow, this is interesting. Oh, they do that? Oh, I know them for their Pinot Noir. I know them for their Chardonnay or, or Pinot Gris or whatever it is. But it's something else to sort of keep spark things. And also for yourself. Like, um, I've done projects and I've done wines before that I truly, truly believed in in labels and that I thought this is this is this is gonna be awesome. I love this wine. This is so cool. Like I did this hippie label, this this skeleton on it that uh, my brother-in-law um, came up with. We talked about the concept and the idea of, of the imagery and the label and everything. And he did it and I spent buku dollars on the labels. I had them so they glow, glowed in the dark and everything. They were super neat. And they had this Grateful Dead sort of hippie sort of skeleton on the, in this basket, crushing grapes and stuff. I, I used grapefruit, fruit from Walla Walla, uh, Syrah from a vineyard called La Colleen. I got Cab from Pepperbridge Vineyard and Seven Hills Vineyard and some Merlot from there. And I was going to go big on this. I thought this was going to be awesome. And I put this together, did everything, got some nice new oak on it and bottled it and nothing. The distributors were like, man, this looks a little campy. I don't know, well, I can't really sell this for what you want for it. So it just fell on deaf ears. But at the time I was... Fell on deaf ears. Yeah, so backtrack. So I made this wine, it was called Blacklight. And so it was keeping in that whole like 70s cool blacklight poster sort of feel to it. And that's where I wanted to go with the whole imagery and packaging and all that stuff. So that we did the glow in the dark labels and all that stuff. And <clears throat> it fell on deaf ears. Nobody, the distributors didn't know what to do with it. They loved the wine. And they would take it out occasionally, maybe if they tried, who knows. But <clears throat> it, it, I, I sold it. And it's... It was a fun wine, but people just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So you go, you can have all the passion in the world, no matter what you do in life, no matter what business, no matter what venture you go down, and you could have all the passion in the world for it and put it out there. And but if people don't get it, you can fight it and you can try to push it and you can shove it down their throats so far, but then they're gonna at the end. I'm about to say it again. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, is that another one? Perfect. Okay. Nailed it. When it comes down to it, <laughs> people are going to only support it for so long. And then they're going to move on. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So I abandoned it. And I may bring it back again, just for nostalgia and stuff like that. But it's important to continually push yourself. Try different avenues. Try different things. Try different sort of label, imagery, packaging, whatever you're gonna do in life. And for me being in the wine industry, it's making wine and, and doing different labels and different sort of things. And so we've been doing series. I'm really a fan of series, packaging of different items under a group sort of label and doing it <clears throat> in different quantities and different styles and stuff like that. So we did, the, like I mentioned, the, the barrel project. Mm -hmm. And we did a cab under that label that was aged 72 months in barrel. 
we did a Tempranillo that was 67 months in barrel from down south, down from Steelhead Run that I got fruit from Herb Quaddy and his name come up a few times during this whole thing. And um, I mean, as far as your archival mm -hmm, mm -hmm. stuff. And then um, we did a Chardonnay that was 36 months from fruit from Ferrising Vineyard over here. Mm -hmm. We did, what else did we do? We got a Pinot in the works, which was basically like 10 years in barrel on that one. And I'm trying to think, there was one, oh, a Grenache that was 36 months in barrel as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a fun project that, you know, we're doing under a series mm -hmm. on that side. We did a sparkling wine too, um, Method Champenois, under a series, under what my wife coined as Art Brute, which is an art movement that basically deals with unskilled artists that are mm -hmm. putting art out. and have picked up, been picked up by the limelight or by collectors or whatever. And so we did a series of labels under that as well. So I'm a big fan of that sort of style of marketing. And part of me has been into the guerrilla marketing too, mm -hmm. of doing things just sort of just a little bit more random and more sort of like sporadic and, and do it towards this and that, towards a sort of whatever whims uh, to help promote that product. So recently during this whole pandemic thing, we've been doing some concerts in the tasting room here and we've done some sporadic sort of marketing towards that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not utilizing and I'm not thinking of the concerts merely on the sake of this is something I'm going to do weekly or monthly mm -hmm. from now until the end of time or whatever. I'm using this, and this might be getting into the whole brain of it all and marketing side of things, but um, I'm utilizing that for content for our websites for people to go and see, plus the style of music that I have in our tasting rooms I think defines me, who I am, stylistically. Um, <clears throat> there is a vein of, of style of music, but it plays into who I am. So it's important when you do have your own label, when you do have your own wines and stuff like that, mm -hmm. that it has to be of who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's sort of the name Roots for me is so strong. Mm -hmm. So when you do have that, you gotta have it has to speak of who you are. And it may not, I mean, you could carry it over from wine to whatever you do in life. Um, it has to be who you are. Don't just be one of those people that goes down to name store and buy those items off the shelf and go around and be, that's your identity. You know, don't be one of the Joneses. Not that the Joneses are bad, or the Smiths. You know, I've known a lot of Smiths over my life, and Joneses, mm -hmm. and they're great people. <clears throat> but don't be like the person that's always looking after what your neighbor's doing and trying to be like them. Be yourself. So you've been in the industry here to 
20-ish years. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about what you've seen change, uh, what Oregon wine looked like to you when you came in, what it looks like now, what, what the biggest changes have been in those 20 years. A lot. It's changed. Well, like I mentioned earlier, I got into the industry because I was into food and wine pairing. I was into the wine is, is accompaniment to the meal. It's a good bonding thing. Like, you know, I, I came out here and the first wineries I went to were like, oh gosh, can't remember that far back. But it was a lot of the small family owned vineyards. I remember going to Irie back in like 94 and 96 and meeting David Lett back then and going to um, like Westry back in 97 meeting with Amy and David over there and some of those those, those smaller vineyards and seeing them and and at the time I don't think people were really in it for because they wanted to pat themselves on the back and it wasn't about trying to do it because you wanted to be showy at all so you wanted the people wanted to do it because they were into the food and it was more like like how burgundy is you know it was more about like or was, I don't know how Burgundy is now. I've never been there, I've always wanted to go there, but that'll be a trip at some, some time down the line. But, uh, you know, I, for me it was about, about family and being part of that whole camaraderie and group sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's grown from that, from 99 and 2000, and then in 2000, Six, sometime between 2006 and 2007, it started to become more about um, bigger money coming in, some California influence coming in, more outside investments going on, like in 2006 or seven, I can't remember when it was, PPV, uh, William Hill, who used to own Van Duzer and, and the, I think he had another place before that, uh, convinced California PERS, they, they came up with a, a whole buy-in and a vineyard property and developing those. And they bought up a lot of land. It jacked prices up a bit. Um, and that changed, that sort of changed the face of the industry a bit mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. And then there was more of that going on. And then we had the economic recession in 2000, I think it was eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And then that put everything to a halt and stop as far as the, the growth of it. I mean, there was people already in the works that were still going down that path of developing and growing mm -hmm. their own brand or product or vineyard or whatnot at that time. But it slowed down substantially, just like all sort of economic cycles go. And then it picked up again in like 2010 and started growing. And at that point, 
we saw a lot more proliferation of young winemakers that were in the wine industry, either psalms or other aspects of it, or they've worked in cellars, start out developing their own labels and growing those out. And that has gone huge over the last eight, ten years. Um, you know, back in Europe, you wouldn't see that as much, I would think, because back there, it's predominantly, you have to have your own cellar in order to make your own wine. There weren't really, I don't think they have as many, like, Custom Crush or AP hmm. alternating proprietor places you can go make wine. So the amount of wineries, per se, in Europe versus here or in Oregon are substantially different. And the, the you know, in, in Europe it's all about, it, a lot of it has to do with tradition. They can't get away from it. Mm -hmm. you know? It's just the way it's so steeped in them because of the history and everything like that. While in Oregon, Oregon is about the new frontier. It's about pioneering. Now, we won't talk about the pioneers. I mean, I truly love the fact that they were the ones that came out here and they're the trendsetters to start the industry and everything. But, and that, that philosophy is carried over, but it, it's the philosophy of Oregon as a whole mm -hmm. of being a place where you can go and reinvent yourself and become who you are. That's how I got out here was from all this stuff. And it's because that I wanted to reinvent myself. And I came here, and, and, and fortunately, and one of the most beautiful things about Oregon is that it's accepting of who you want to be in that, you know, you want to be who you are and grow and do what you want to do. But then they'll talk behind your back about it. But that's something totally different. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, so as far as, so from like 2010 to where we are today, there's been this huge proliferation of young winemakers out there that got in the industry for this or that, and they can do that because they're sharing space with other people, and they can do like their micro 25, 50 cases and sell it to their friends and sell it to a few wine shops or restaurants, but not in this economic environment because there's no restaurants, but they can sell it to those locations and start developing their own brand out from there. And from outside of Oregon, it seems like there's an unquenchable thirst for the new, young, what's the latest, greatest stuff out there that they could take back, like say the distributors in say, I'll say Virginia or New York or Cleveland, Ohio or wherever, that those distributors can take that product back to there and it gives them something brand new and fresh in their book while not having to invest much in mm -hmm. overall changing their whole structure of their business model or their current uh, producer debt base that they carry but they can carry like somebody in there and that's doing like this this new guy out there who's doing whatever like I don't know, some Hungarian grape clone that has been extinct since the 1800s, but it was found in this one vineyard and it's been propagated to now grow 
100 acres and they brought the cuttings over here and they propagated them in bat guana for three years and then they end up grafting it onto some crazy hybrid Germanic rootstock that came about from Bavaria from the 1200s and I don't know you can get into the whole story aspect of it all. I'd buy that. Yeah, exactly. I already bought like 40 cases of it last week. He's only got two cases left. <laughs> but, you know, hats off to all those kids that are getting into the industry that are, that are you know, they've got their own story to tell. What do you see as you look ahead for Oregon, and, and has the pandemic changed your view of the future for wine here? Mm. Well, it's, the pandemic has changed the whole stratosphere. You know, I think as far as where it's going to go, your guess is as good as mine. We've just got to stay on top of it and be flexible with the change. Like. You know, it could change tomorrow. But as far as the overall, <clears throat> how things will, if it will go back to where it was, ugh, it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, though, you know, and this is one of the lessons that I learned from Eric Homaker in the early days. He went to UC Davis, so he knew he was a smart guy. He took some wine business classes down there, and he was like saying, you know what's great about the wine industry? It's almost bulletproof in a way. You got to either drink to celebrate, or you drink because you're sad or depressed or something to forget your troubles. Commiserate. Yeah. So it's sort of like it's 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 for all occasions, you know. So I get it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So in this case, with the pandemic, I mean, we've seen people order more wine. We've seen people come in, and but they've been, and what is we've also seen a lot of people band around and support each other because of it too. Mm -hmm. And that's been nice to see on that, that side of it. And, um, you know, there's, there's, I think as far as in the long run, it's, there's definitely going to be a lot, there's going to be some weeding out for sure. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some brands that are not going to be able to weather the storm that aren't going to be able to go with the time because who knows mm -hmm. they're the one trick pony or or they're seeing themselves they 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 financially can't weather it or they don't have an outlet to sell their wares mm -hmm. like fortunately i i feel very blessed and fortunate i'm not super religious and all that stuff but i do feel blessed in the sense that we do have a tasting room. I have a good network of distributors. Um, I'm fairly small and nimble where I can bounce around and do other stuff. I've got a great group of growers that I work with that are very thoughtful and very understanding um, that are helpful towards some of this stuff. Um, but having a tasting room and having the network of distributors allows me to have other networks and avenues to sell my wares. Mm -hmm. Without that, oof, that's, it gets really difficult. Mm -hmm. Like if you do a thousand cases, well, how much wine are you going to be able to drink? You know. But having these other outlets is allowing me to 
find other avenues in order to sell it. What about as you look ahead for yourself and for your own brand? Is there anything you haven't that you wanted? You talk about being nimble and about trying new things. Is there something you will have on the horizon that you want to try or things you're expecting to, to do in, in the upcoming years? Well, now that we got the canning line, it offers me the benefits of moving into other avenues other than just solely into just making wine. You know, I love wine. That's, I'm, 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 it's what I am. I, what I do and everything is making wine and, and tending or being first and foremost a parent and, and, and the husband and stuff like that. And a little boy and being a taking care of some dirty dogs. <laughs> and then uh, farming a vineyard, being a farmer on that side, and then crafting the wines that come from the vineyards and being a winemaker on that side. But now that I'm done all that, now I've got the canning line, and now it's allowing me to do other things other than just solely bottled wine. Now I can do other fun stuff. Like we've got a product that we're doing like a, it's gonna, tip our hat and toes into the water of doing some sodas and things like that using using um, vinifera grape, mm -hmm. like Pinot Gris I'll be doing this fall, and we did some Sad Blanc last year, and we'll probably look at a few other varietals, maybe some Gewurz or Riesling, I've always been in love with those varietals, or Muscat, mm -hmm. and add those and make some, some, some juices from that, or CBD sodas or things like that, you know? But having the flexibility of that, I think I see myself developing, growing into other areas because I think it goes back to who I am. It's important for you to continually push yourself and try different things. And that ends up making you who you are. Mm -hmm. Actually, just going to wrap up. Are we good? How much time do we have? We got a few minutes? Oh, perfect. All the questions that I have for you today. Uh, awesome. Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Do you want two dirty, two dirty dogs to take home? <laughs> well, if you just hovered one, maybe, but two, no. <laughs> I know it takes up a lot more room. I don't, I don't have the property to for them to roam and get dirty like that, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> but they're happy though. They're totally content they with what they happy. do. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I mean, I appreciate you taking your time out of your days to come out here and listen to me babble. We appreciate it. It was, it was enjoyable for me, at least. I can't speak for Lily, but I very much enjoyed it. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time, for your stories and your perspectives. Uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All righty. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.